time to open up the archives for another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast. The only podcast that takes you through every single DC superhero comic story from the beginning to the present. I'm your host, Nick Byers. Episode 8 will be covering real-world history from February 15th to February 29th, 1940, and issues... Uh, of Flash Comics number four, Superman number four, Action Comics number 23, and More Fun Comics number 54. Fewer issues this time, and I'll explain that once we get to the actual issues, but first, let's set the scene. February 10th, Tom and Jerry make their debut in the short film Puss Gets the Boot under the original names of Jasper and Jinx. I remember just spending afternoons when I was younger uh, watching Tom and Jerry, love Tom and Jerry, and uh, the very imitatable violence that they uh, they do, uh, because every house has an iron, and you can always drop it on your sibling. February 12th, the radio serial, The Adventures of Superman, adapted from the comic book character Superman, premiered as a syndicated show. This show is actually really, really important, because it introduces a lot of things that are now canon to Superman, and then were later added into the comics. Things like Kryptonite and Jimmy Olsen's name and him actually being, you know, a newsboy at the Daily Star and then Daily Planet eventually. February 21st, the results of a Gallup poll were published asking Americans if it appears that Germany is defeating England and France, should the United States declare war on Germany and send our army and navy to Europe to fight? 77% said no. And 23% said yes, not counting the seven who expressed no opinion. This is very much a, an indication of, of the country's feelings about getting into another war with Europe. They're still feeling the scars even 30 years on from, from the first world war that erupted in Europe and, and America eventually got involved in. So they're very much not up for it. Uh, and in, in a couple years, almost almost two years... Uh, that will change, but that's because the war comes to our own backyard. February 22nd, the new five-year-old Dalai Lama was enthroned in Tibet. That is the same Dalai Lama that exists today. And if you don't know, the Dalai Lama is the foremost spiritual leader of the Gelug, or Yellow Hat School of Tibetan Buddhism, the newest and most dominant of the four major schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Very important religious figure to people in Tibet. February 25th, the first hockey game, because you know I'm a big hockey fan, so I had to talk about this, is televised in North America and was broadcast on W2XBS from Madison Square Garden between the New York Rangers and the Montreal Canadiens, uh, two teams that still exist today. Uh, New York won 6-2. And finally, February 29th, the 12th Academy Awards were held in Los Angeles. Good timing, right? Very topical. Hosted by Bob Hope for the first of what would be 19 times. Gone with the Wind, which we talked about, I believe, last episode, won eight awards, including Best Picture. Hattie McDaniel, who plays uh, Mammy in the film, became the first African-American to win an Oscar when she was named Best Supporting Actress. And another little fun tidbit about this Academy Awards is the Los Angeles Times published the names of the winners in its 8.45 p.m. edition, back when newspapers printed multiple editions a day. Uh, so most of the attendees already knew the results ahead of time, which ruins a lot of the suspense of an award show. Uh, so then basically all they're there to do is, is get drunk, which 
you know, is always a good time. But the Academy would respond by starting a tradition the following year in which the winners were not revealed until the ceremony itself when sealed envelopes were opened, which still occurs today. Uh, So that's what's going on in the real world when these issues are being published. Now let's get into them. Uh, I have two notes before we get into the actual issues. First is uh, about characters that are later bought by DC but are being published at this time. I've gotten some questions uh, over on the Instagram issue issue podcast if you wanted to check it out. Why I haven't talked about people like Dan Garrett, the first Blue Beetle, uh, or Shazam, Captain Marvel, who is being published uh, in January of this year. Actually debuted in January of 1940. And that's because those issues aren't DC Comics. I, I will talk about them, of course, when they are introduced. I don't want to muddle them in with stuff that's actually happening in DC Comics because their origins and stuff, that'll all be retconned uh, or integrated when they come in. Uh, and we can talk about that then, uh, giving, you know, each one can have a little bit of a sort of a summary of what they went on with, you know. this That won't happen until probably 1985, though, um, for a lot of them. Uh, with Crisis on Infinite Earths, but I just wanted to mention that just in case anyone was wondering why I'm not talking about Captain Marvel or, you know, Blue Beetle or Uncle Sam or whatever. So, and second note is uh, there's only four issues this week. You might be thinking, well, hey, we did like seven, eight issues last week, and uh, that's a good point. Uh, But we have a a very, very uh, big issue in this one, Superman number four, which has four original stories. No reprints of action comics, no reprints of newspaper stories, all four originals. So that's a a lot of stories. Like, uh, I mean, Flash Comics has three. So that's, you know, bigger than Flash Comics, and Flash Comics takes a big portion of the show. And I don't want to have to deal with, you know, a four-hour pre-edit, because that would make my life a nightmare. So uh, we're just going to be doing four, and and we are going to be going to a, a... fewer issues sort of format just to make it easier on me uh sorry to all those people who enjoyed those two hour two and a half hour episodes they will likely be rare uh because they take a lot to do uh but let's get into it for the first issue nothing enough of me talking about me and and my process making making a bunch of boohoo sounds flash comics number four Released February 15th, 1940, with a cover date of April 1940. No debuts in this one. Flash, Hawkman, Johnny Thunder. Let's get into the Flash story. The Flash story opens up with Jay Garrick, the Flash, just kind of hanging out down at the docks. We've all been there. We've all just been spending a night at the docks casually. And he hears a woman scream. And he swims at, you know, his supersonic speeds... Uh, out to grab her, and he he grabs her and he brings her back to his apartment. He does carry her in a weird way while they're swimming. Instead of like holding her underneath the arm or or whatever, he's holding her by the neck in a sort of like a sort of chokehold, uh, or not chokehold, like a sort of like he's like full on grabbing her uh, throat with his hand. Uh, it's weird. It looks like she might uh, die if he did that. He then runs her back to his apartment, uh, drying their clothes in the process. So that's good. And she wakes up and says, what, where am I? And first thing he says, not, you know, you're safe, I'm the Flash, I'm a superhero, is you can talk later. Here, drink this. Now, a little advice to uh, everyone out there. If you are drowning 
and you pass out. And the next minute you're in some guy's apartment and you're dry and he says, don't ask any questions. Drink this. Do not drink that. That's clearly a bad situation to be in. Joan Williams comes in, friend of the Flash, although um, it's clearly romantic. So uh, I don't know why they say friend, but she informs Jay that this is a socialite, a fancy lady, which I don't think should matter because people of all economic stratas, their lives matter just as equally. The woman is awake and says, I'm Marsha Van Duren, and uh, my fiancé Jimmy and I were heading out to this gambling ship, the Seven Seas, and once we got there, they pushed me overboard and were beating on Jimmy. So the Flash runs out and uh, uh, swims to the ship and, and gets on board. And this part of the story is convoluted and pointless because we've seen on numerous occasions the Flash... The Flash moves so fast that nobody can see him. Uh, So instead of searching the whole ship, uh, the Flash does one of his favorite things. He takes a guy's clothes. I don't know what is up with Gardner Fox and uh, having his his super fast character take people's clothes, but he's he's done it again. That's like four in a row, maybe maybe only three. He takes this guy's clothes because he wants to blend in as a gambler. And he said, and he borrows a dollar. He says, "I only need a dollar." So he then goes to play some roulette, and uh, Jay makes it a point to say that he hates gambling. Uh, but if he's ever going to find out about the kidnappers, he'll have to pretend. He doesn't have to pretend. He could search the entire ship before I finish this sentence. So I don't really think he does need to gamble uh, if he hates it so much. Uh, it's just a convoluted story point that is unnecessary. So he's playing roulette. And the way he is playing and winning roulette, uh, I don't know why he needs to win either. But he is, as soon as the ball's about to stop, he moves it to the right number that so that he wins. Okay, so he's made a bunch of money, and he runs, you know, searching through the back offices of the ship, almost like he could have done that the whole time. And he finds these three dudes. They don't have names. They matter, but they are nameless. He squirts ink at them and pretends to be a ghost, uh, so they run out of the office so he can search. He searches their safe and finds a proposed law to prohibit gambling ships, backed by steel magnate Norton, who is Jimmy Norton's father. Don't know why that was in the safe. Don't know why he needed to find that information in their office. I feel like that would have just been in the news or you know, could have been information that Marsha could have given, but okay. Um, so they want to force Norton Sr. to withdraw his support from it uh, so that the gambling ship can continue to exist. And he runs back and he did all this while the roulette wheel was spinning. And he searches the whole ship uh, during the next spin, and he finds Jimmy Norton locked up in the brig. And rather than running and grabbing the keys off of a guy and and coming and unlocking him and letting him out, he leaves him there uh, and asks him, Jimmy, like, what's what's going on? And they're going to call Jimmy's father to the ship and force him to sign a statement recusing his support of the proposed law. So uh, the Flash goes back and cashes in his money. He won $200,000, but uh, he only wants a dollar of it, uh, and this makes the cashier faint from surprise. Um, I, I would faint from just the sheer stupidity. Uh, so... But it's cheating. It's not cool. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever. The Flash goes back, gives that dude back his clothes, and gets back his Flash uniform, and then runs back to his apartment to ask Marsha where the the senior Norton lives. 
And Marcia says that he lives in Hallwood, which is two hours in a car from here. And so the flash runs and he says, oh, not bad at all. Two hours travel in slightly over three minutes. Now for Norton. Uh, but the house is dark. And so they've already left. Now, this part is, I think, a, a, uh, is a problem with the editor or whoever did the checking on this because the next panel says just an hour earlier at that Norton mansion that The Flash is now, now at. That takes two hours one way to travel to. It says an hour earlier, the Nor- Norton Sr. is on the phone, and that's when he's you know being uh, asked to come to the ship. And so you would think, oh, he's only halfway there. The Flash can catch him on the way back. Nope, he was there. He, he has made it. Uh, and in fact, when the Flash gets to where the the kidnappers told Norton Sr. to go, they've already captured him and left his chauffeur sort of beaten up. And, sa- and the chauffeur says that, of course, they brought him to the ship. So there's real real time discrepancy in this one. Uh, maybe just a little bit of uh, proofreading would have helped for that. So the, sh- the Flash runs back to his apartment, grabs Marsha because he needs her for some reason uh and runs back to the ship or swims for part of it obviously and we see norton senior and he is uh being asked to sign the paper but he doesn't want to uh he says no i won't and then they pull out jimmy and say we're gonna we're gonna beat him up or we're gonna kill him and he says okay i will i will don't don't hurt myself don't hurt my son uh the flash comes in and steals the paper that he's gonna sign like like a ghost and then he runs back out to where he left Marsha on the ship and grabs her and brings her in. And he moves so fast to make it look like she's a floating body. And everyone thinks she's a ghost. And she says, I'm the ghost of the girl you murdered, uh, who you pushed over the side of the boat. Release your prisoners. They attempt to shoot Marsha to prove that she's not a ghost. But the Flash moves her out of the room fast enough so that she's fine. The Flash then runs back inside and grabs Norton Sr., and swims him back to shore. Then the proprietors of the ship think they see Marcia again, and they shoot at her, but the Flash got to her just in time. And I don't know when he grabbed Jimmy Norton, but he did. After bringing all of the Nortons to the shore, he then goes to deal with the gamblers and their ship. He ties the propeller of the ship so that they can't move, and then he comes to the gamblers, or the owners of the ship, and says, hey, I'm going to take you to jail. And they're like, nuh-uh, I've got this gun. And uh, But the Flash grabs the gun from him so he can't shoot him. Then they're like, well, we've got this really fast speedboat. So they run and jump into this speedboat, the fastest boat made. And they're like, ha, 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 ho, ho, ho. He can't catch us, ha, ha, ha. Uh, but he can because he's the Flash. So he swims you know, neck and neck with the boat and then overtakes the boat, even though they have the pedal to the metal, even though I don't think boats have pedals. Uh, Maybe they did it this time. He then beats the ship, gets in front of it, and asks them if they're ready to go to jail. And they say, I'm willing, me too. Anything to feel I'm a sane man again. Uh, Then they're at the, the police station, and the desk sergeant, who's amazed, they say, we're giving ourselves up, kidnapping and attempted murder. And the Flash, who of course has to get credit, says, don't forget they're delivered with the compliments of the Flash. And that's the end. A uh, really convoluted story that didn't have to happen. Um, but I guess you got to do what you got to do to fill up the, the pages and the panels. Am I right? 
Oh, I completely forgot to mention, uh, as I'm so bad about doing, this Flash story was written and drawn by Gardner F. Fox and Everett E. Hibbard, just like the last one. Uh, so let's uh, let's fly on over to the Hawkman. Hawkman. Let's fly on over to the Hawkman story now. This Hawkman story was written and drawn by Gardner F. Fox and Sheldon Moldoff. Uh, although on the you know the front first page it says by Shelley, and I got confused when I first read that. I was like, some woman named Shelley did this? I didn't see that, but it is obviously short for Sheldon. Uh, and this has uh, Hawkman going up against the Thought Terror, a master hypnotist who is is doing is using hypnotism to do nefarious actions. So let's get into it. Uh, so at the Futurist Club, which Futurists are people who are, are, are you know think the future is cool. I don't know the exact definition of futurist, but it's someone who I don't know thinks or talks about the future a lot or something. This guy uh, in a very, very spooky outfit, uh, it's like a purple, like a red, like mauve, like a mauve robe with a full hood, like an executioner. Uh, and he is predicting the future uh, for this guy, but he's actually hypnotizing him. You can see red beams coming out of his eyes, uh, and he's hypnotizing the guy. So he says he's predicting that the guy will drink so much and get so drunk that he'll walk in front of a car and get killed. Uh, but in reality, he is hypnotizing the guy into thinking that he's, he's incredibly drunk. So we then cut to the guy walking home, and he's so drunk. He's swerving, you know, uh, and he runs into Carter Hall, and, you know, he says, oh, excuse me. And Carter says, hey, watch out. You've had too much to drink. Be careful. And But Carter, being the master detective that he is, notices that the guy's acting drunk, but he doesn't smell like liquor on his breath at all, which is weird, obviously, because, you know, if, if you've ever drank anything, you can definitely smell it. Uh, and the guy walks out into the street, and a car's about to hit him, but Carter tackles him away from the car and uh, tells the guy, don't worry, I got him. You got really close to killing him, but, but no harm done. You can run along, driver of the car. Carter then takes the guy home, and uh, kind of asks him some questions. And he tells him about the Thought Terror. Which, good on the Thought Terror for just having his villain name out in the open like that. Not like hiding behind any sort of alias. He tells he tells um, Carter that the Thought Terror told him that he was going to drink so much and get drunk and get hit by a car. And Carter says, well, you've drunk nothing. You're, you're sober as a judge. Uh, we then cut to the car that almost hit the guy. And uh, he drives back into a garage and is met by hooded figures who are dressed uh, just like the Thought Terror. And they ask him if he succeeded. And he says, no, a guy saved him just in time. And the Thought Terror, you know, kind of unveils his plan and says that he's been making a fortune in fees for reading the future. And, uh, and then having the people who he's reading the future to act out the things that he predicts. So, you know, he says, you know, he says, oh, you're going to. You're going to go home and jump off your roof. And he hypnotizes them into doing that, which I guess is not. I hope he is not killing all of them because that doesn't seem like good word of mouth. Um, you know, like uh, this guy didn't have ch a chance to say, wow, the thought terror was right. Uh, but it's, it seems weird. But he's made three thousand dollars tonight, which means uh, at his calculations of one hundred dollars a question, he answered Oh, I guess only 30 questions. I thought it was going to be more. Uh, 
But uh, 30 questions in one night, 30, 30 fortune tellings, that's a lot of work. But $3,000, hey, I'd do that. I'd, I'd predict 30 futures for $3,000. So the Hawkman has deduced that this guy is actually only doing this, hypnotizing people and not actually telling the future because he says this thing to the guy who almost got hit by the car. He says, you've told me all about this thought terror as he is known. No man can foretell the future. So this man must be a fake. Hey, Carter, you uh, use magical metal wings to uh, fly through the sky, and you're the reincarnated uh, prince of ancient Egypt. I'm pretty sure it's possible that someone could predict the future, uh, but uh, whatever. We all have our biases, you know. Uh, so Hawkman, or Carter Hall, goes back and puts on his Hawkman costume and uh, gets some tools. He starts off with a net and a shield because, as the caption says, he fights the evils of the present with the weapons of the past. So he's always got to use some ancient weapon to fight. And he doesn't want to harm any of these innocent people because they're likely being hypnotized into doing the thought terrorist business. So he goes to, I don't know how he finds the place where they're hiding out, but he does. And through the window, he sees the driver of the car. He's kind of leaning over the table, drinking some alcohol. And he says, uh, the caption says, Believing the driver to be a weak sister, the hawk prepares to kidnap him. Hawkman doesn't doesn't kidnap brothers uh, or non-weak sisters. Only weak sisters does the hawkman kidnap. He nets the guy with his net and carries him through the sky back to the, the Carter Hall residence. And he makes him talk. And he says, you know, he tells him that the, the hypnotist, you know, is collecting these $100 fees and for telling the future, and, and but he's actually hypnotizing people. And he hypnotizes the people working for him, so they're all, you know, innocent people. The Hawkman grabs his shield and heads back and explains to the guy that he doesn't have to worry about it because he's going to use the shield like Perseus in his fight against the Gorgon Medusa, which, if you don't know... It involves looking at Medusa only through the reflection of the shield, so then her her gaze of of, of turning you to stone doesn't work uh, because magic can't travel through mirrors, I guess. So the ha- Hawkman's off to to do that. Uh, he he breaks into the the house that he was previously at where he kidnapped the guy, and he is immediately uh, attacked by a bunch of these hooded, cloaked figures, and they beat him up pretty good because for whatever reason they're hypnotized into just being invincible, like, or thinking they're invincible. So no matter how hard the Hawkman punches them, uh, they don't, they're not affected, which I don't know if that's how anything works, but we'll go with it. One of them does hit him with, like, a very big sort of uh, Captain Caveman-style club. It's very funny. Um, and they, they, they lock him in the, I guess, stone stonework basement uh, of this house. And he has a window that's barred, and so he's like, ah, how am I going to get out of here? But the next day, Shiera, Carter Hall's fiance, Shiera Sanders, goes to his house and finds that he's not there. And the driver guy tells her where he's at. So Shiera sets off to try and find Hawkman, maybe help him out. Uh, she grabs a gun just in case. And once she gets there, she uh, is walking around, and Carter sees her through the barred window of his basement dungeon, and he uses the shield as a heliograph to uh, communicate Morse code. Uh, so she, he he gets the light to aim into Shiera's eyes so that she notices, and then he, he 
you know, Morse codes a message. So I just imagine that Shiera is just like standing on this lawn of this house watching Morse code because depending on how fast, you know, someone can read it, it takes a while to decode Morse code. So I just imagine her standing there for five minutes and people inside are, you know, looking like, why is she just standing here? That's weird. But no one noticed her just standing there for five minutes. The the cloaked figures, you know, burst into the dungeon and they notice what Hawkman's doing and they take the shield away and uh, uh, they take the shield away and the thought terror says that he's going to let Hawkman starve uh, or or go mad or, you know, die. Basically, he's going to slow kill him in this dungeon. He doesn't get a quick death for whatever reason. The thought terror is very spiteful. Uh, Shiera has run off at this point to get tools to break Hawkman out of uh, this dungeon, and she returns that night with a blowtorch, and uh, the Hawkman, you know, uses the blowtorch on the door to get out, and then he finds these leather, like, strips used for reinforcing furniture specifically, uh, so there he's going to use those to bind the the hypnotized guards and stuff, um, and they tell him he he needs the shield obviously because that's how he's gonna defeat the thought terror. And they tell him that uh, it's it's upstairs outside of the master's private room, and Hawkman you know fights his way through some more guards and gets the shield, and then heads for the thought terror's room. He just basically holds the holds it up holds the shield up above his face. He doesn't look through it because he's not he doesn't actually end up fighting the thought terror. Because as Carter walks in, the Thought Terror tries to hypnotize him. He tells him, you are harmless, docile as a kitten. You're an idiot, an idiot, in his hypnotic, with his hypnotic gaze. The gaze reflects off the shield back into the eyes of the Thought Terror. And he hypnotizes himself. And he says, ha ha, I'm a little pussycat. Mew mew, I'm an idiot. Ha ha, ha ha. You know, like idiots do. Uh, so he's defeated the Thought Terror without really, you know, having to beat him up, so that's cool. Uh, the, the hypnotized henchmen are freed of their uh, hypnotism, and uh, Shiera tells Carter that he did a good job, and he's going to call the lunatic asylum to uh, put the thought terror behind bars for life. And that's the end. A good, uh, a good Hawkman story. Like I said last time, I like it when he fights people that aren't science-based because he's a mystical character at this point. So it's cool that he's fighting someone with magic hypnotism powers so that's cool that's cool big fan big fan but let's uh let's head on over to the johnny thunderbolt johnny thunder story and this johnny thunderbolt story was written and drawn by john b wentworth and stan ashmeyer as all the previous ones have been and this johnny thunderbolt story picks up exactly where we left off having just one uh world heavyweight champ boxing match uh, against gunpowder glance i believe so later, after the fight, Johnny leaves the the garden uh, and must be must be Madison Square. He meets up with Daisy Darling, who previously said that she they couldn't get married as previously scheduled, and she's mad at him because he won. And he says, "I didn't even mean to. I don't know how I even you know knocked him out. I tried. I tried to lose." Johnny's chasing her down the street, and they run into her father. We haven't met you before. Herman Darling, he's a big, he's a rotund man in a blue suit. Uh, and he just won a bunch of money betting on Johnny to win the fight. So that's good. And that's good for the Darlings. And he's bragging about how much money he won. And uh, around the corner, we see 
a, a nefarious looking man. He's rubbing his hands together like an evil person. And he's going to steal that money. Daisy and her father get in a taxi and, and drive home. And this, uh, this robber, this nefarious man, gets in a taxi and says the thing that you do. And says, follow that cab. And they do. They just do that. Like, you can just tell a taxi driver to follow a car. And they'll just do it. Uh, once the darlings get home, uh, Herman Darling is walking to the door. He's going to put his money in his safe. But uh, the nefarious man, who we learn is named Jip the Jeep, which I don't know what that means, and I hope it's not offensive in any way, he jumps out behind a tree with a gun and says, stick him up. And uh, Herman Darling says a great phrase. He says, jumping butterfish, which is great. I think we should all add it into our daily vocabulary. And Jip uh, the Jeep knocks him out with the butt of his pistol and steals all his money. And uh, <laughs> Daisy, who who is so weird, uh, comes up and sees her dad, you know, laying on the ground holding his head and says, Get up, Daddy. You'll catch your death of cold living, lying there on that cold ground. Not worried at all why he's laying on the ground. And uh, I'm just going to call him the bad guy. I'm not going to say his name anymore because I'm not sure if it's like a slur of some kind. Uh, he jumps out from behind the tree and grabs her and says, keep your mouth shut or I'm going to brain you and, uh, and and kidnaps her. In the meanwhile, we see Johnny and he's just being harassed on the street by his admirers. You know, they're like, they they want they want his shoelaces, they want his hat, they want his pants, uh, all this kind of stuff because he's, he's the world heavyweight champion. He's a celebrity now. And he says, say you, go on now, scram, go jump in the river. Say you, of course, is his magic power word. And so everyone goes and jumps into the river. Johnny's always so mad when people, like, do these things that he says. He's like, why can't they treat me like an ordinary guy? Why do they have to overdo it just because I asked them to go away? He says There's some, there must be something funny about me. He's beginning to figure it out. He's beginning to figure it out. Johnny's not the most intelligent guy, but he's beginning to figure it out. At that moment... Herman Darling rushes down the street and finds Johnny and tells him that all of his money's been stolen and Daisy has been kidnapped. Johnny asks who did it, and nobody knows. Neither do the police. We know, though. And uh, Herman and Johnny rush to the uh, back to the scene of the crime, which is the Darling household. And Johnny still has his magic powers because it lasts for an hour. So he says, uh, we've got to get back and see if the kidnapper left any evidence. Come on. And he says, faster, faster. So they get back quicker than you could make it by train, boat, subway, or plane. So that's cool. Johnny can give himself super speed. Uh, the policeman who's there, you know, kind of watching the scene, because that's typically what you do with crime scenes. You kind of guard him. He wants to know what the kidnapper looked like. Uh, and Johnny says, yeah, and I want him here where I can get a good sock at him. And then suddenly, the bad guy appears out of nowhere with a little with a little th- with a little thunderbolt symbol, and he says, "Here I am, sock me." And uh, they say, "Hey, that's the guy. He's public snake in the grass number A one." Johnny says, "Why you cheap chiseler? I'll knock you into the middle of next week." And he punches him in the face, and he flies up in the sky and disappears. And the police is like, "Well, now what did you do with him?" And Johnny's like, I don't know, I just hit him. But Johnny is beginning to figure it out, so he waits around uh, in the middle of next week, Wednesday. And as, as the clock strikes midnight, the bad guy reappears. And he asks him, what have you done with Daisy? With Daisy? And he says, I'm holding her for ransom. I'll get it. Johnny, he says, say you, you know, you won't be around to collect it. 
And uh, the bad guy says, oh, yeah, I will, and punches Johnny, knocks him out, and steals a guy's car at gunpoint. Uh, Johnny wakes up to this car driver uh, standing over him, and he's, you know, asking him, like, hey, you know, are you okay? And Johnny says, where did that guy go? And the guy says, I don't know. And Johnny says, don't just stand there. Take me where that crook's going quick. Uh, and the guy says, well, how do I know where he's going? Uh, but suddenly they they fly off into the sky and they land in the middle of this building where we see, we see Daisy tied up and we see the bad guy walking through the door. And Johnny and his new friend jump the guy and sit on him until the police get there. And the policeman says, congratulations, Thunderbolt. You're not only a great fighter, but a great detective. They'll probably make you a G-man for capturing this public enemy. And G-man is, of course, like a, like a police officer or a federal agent or something like that. Gover- a government man. And Daisy says, oh, goody. But Johnny says, I don't want to be a G-man. And Daisy says, I could never respect a fighter, Johnny, dear. But if you were a respectable G-man, I might marry you. And Johnny, who loves Daisy says, well, I don't like the idea exactly, but I'll try it once for you. So now, you know, Johnny's going to start, you know, fighting crime, and he's starting to figure out his his Thunderbolt power. So that's really cool, and I like that. Because, I mean, there's something to the idea of him doing it accidentally, but that can only go so far. So it'll be interesting to see what he does when he figures out that he can actually, like, do stuff like this with his magical say you Thunderbolt powers. But uh, that's the uh, that's the Johnny Thunderbolt story. Pretty good. And uh, that's Flash Comics number four. Uh, So let's move on to Superman number four. Superman number four was released on February 15th, 1940, with a cover date of spring 1940. There There is technically a debut, but it's really a technicality just due to release dates and stuff. So we'll talk more about the debut in the next issue in in action comics number 23 because that's where it actually happens within the the universe of superman in the real world this is the first appearance of of lex luther but his technical first uh, appearance is in action comics number 23 because in this one he talks about oh we meet again superman you know And, and superman already knows who he is so this is just some weird stuff happening with publication and stuff putting things out of order. So, but let's get into the actual issue. It's written and drawn and inked by Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, and Paul Cassidy. So the first story starts uh, with an earthquake striking Metropolis. And inside the office of the Daily Planet, which is, this is also technically the first appearance of the Daily Planet, although it is actually in Action Comics number 23 where this first, this change first happens. Uh, within the universe, as I said. So, but we'll just ignore that. Uh, the editor wants eyewitness details of the quake. So, Clark turns into Superman and heads out to the uh, disaster site and is, you know, saving people from heavy objects, doing all the Superman stuff. And uh, later that day, he turns in an article and his editor really likes it, especially the Superman angle, as per usual. Uh, Clark has learned uh, the disturbance was caused by a new weapon the army is testing, which artificially causes earthquakes. He's going to go talk to the inventor for an interview to see, like, what's going on, all this kind of stuff. He goes to the uh, lab of Professor Martinson, the inventor, uh, and and wants to uh, talk about the story of, of the discovery and, and the accident and all this kind of stuff. And Clark sits down, and this man pistol whips him, 
uh, knocking him out uh, or killing him, he thinks, because he, he checks his pulse and finds not a tick of, of, of a heartbeat. Uh, we learn that this is Clark using one of his superpowers that we have never heard of before, that he has the ability to temporarily halt the beating of his heart. Uh, so that's very specific of a superpower. So this guy throws him out the window uh, to smash against the pavement. Clark, of course, has been faking it with his power and uh, grabs onto the side of the building, as is common for him. And he takes off his suit and underneath is his Superman costume, and he begins climbing the building. Back inside the laboratory, this man is talking to another man through some sort of television communication device box thing. Uh, and it's discovered that these two men were trying to find Professor Martinson's plans for his device. And uh, the the man who is communicating with the man in the lab <laughs> it, uh, sees that Superman is climbing up the building somehow. He sees this. And he drops uh, a bomb from a very f- you know strange-looking plane. Superman catches the bomb and throws it back at the plane, destroying it. Superman climbs back into the laboratory and is is talked to by the man in the communication device. And he says, so we encounter each other once more. And Superman says, Luther, the mad scientist who plots to dominate the world. And it's discovered that he has kidnapped Professor Martinson, uh, who, who refuses to reveal the secrets of his new invention. And Luther says, you know, if, if Martinson proves uncooperative, maybe more fortunate with the army itself. I may be more fortunate with the army itself. So Superman's not quite sure what this means. But that night, a robbery is taking place on the army camp where the device is being held. And Superman's there to foil it. And he tells the, the bandits, thieves, uh, that it's not nice to steal. And he knocks their heads together. They run off to tell Luther to abandon his attempts because Superman's there. Protect it. Uh, Superman follows the plane that they were flying in back to Luther's lab or attempts to follow it back to Luther's lab. But Luther blows it up with the people inside because he's ruthless. Uh, and I should say, uh, I have not mentioned what Alexander Luther, or just Luther at this point. We, we don't get a first name. But what he looks like in this, he's wearing a purple suit, and he has a full head of hair. Doesn't look anything like the the Luther that we know and hate or love or it's a, you know everyone's relationship with Alexander Luther is different. He blows up the plane, and Superman's like, "Dang, that's too bad." Uh, but then he hears someone calling him, and it says, "A challenge, Superman." And he turns around, and uh, and this is weird and unexplained, but uh, Luther's head is poking out of a tree or just like attached to a tree. And he asks, are you willing to declare a temporary truce for a challenge? If your muscles can surpass my scientific feats, I will admit defeat. But if I can outdo you, then you are to retire and leave me a clear path. Do you accept? And Superman says, definitely. They're not going to talk about why Luther's face is coming out of a tree, I guess. But it is. I'll post it for primo panels because it is a buckwild image. Uh, seconds later, two uh, weird-looking planes land, and out comes Luther. The first challenge is a race around the world. Uh, Luther's planes or Superman. Superman beats the planes around the world uh, with his fast running. Uh, next is a who can go the highest, and Superman jumps higher than 
the plane and the plane goes so high that it uh it's no longer controlled by earth's gravity so it's just floating up there we will we'll leave that science aside that, that that's not possible really for a propeller plane at least uh and superman wins that uh next it's to see who can lift the most and luther uses electricity to nullify the weight of a huge boulder and superman of course just lifts the boulder like it's nothing and then he also lifts a plane up and uh you know luther's like good grief uh and then the last one is to see who is the most vulnerable and luther throws a grenade at superman and shoots a cannon at him and gasses him and uh it's Superman's turn, and Super, Superman's about to throw Luther against his plane to see which cracks first, his skull or the metal, which is ruthless. But Luther gives up and hands over Martinson and flies away. Just kind of, you know, kind of gives up. You know, he know, he's a smart guy. He knows when he's been beat. So he's like, I'd rather just head home. Superman brings Martinson back to his laboratory, and they're talking about, you know, Martinson wishes that he'd never invented that device. And the radio has a newsflash, and the newsflash is that the the Army's mysterious new earthquake weapon has been stolen. Martinson and Superman quickly realize, ah, it was Luther. He did the challenge to keep Superman occupied while his henchmen robbed the Army base. So Superman's now got to go out and find uh, Luther and destroy the machine, and he asks Martinson if he knows where he was being held captive. And he says, Satan's Canyon, which is like really on the nose for a bad guy's lair. So Superman heads out there to Satan's Canyon. But as he's getting there, Luther tri- triggers a trap, uh, an explosion that brings a, a, an avalanche of boulders down on Superman. He punches him out of the way, says, what a good workout. He falls into a grass-covered pit and is attacked by two dogs, which uh, he quickly you know, uh, stops. And then he he climbs out and is gassed with some sort of new, powerful new gas uh, that knocks him out. And he is brought to Luther's lair, his tower, his laboratory tower lair. And he is set on the ground and Luther fires the earthquake ray at him and opens up a crevice which he falls inside of and uh, is buried alive. Superman wakes up underground. And quickly digs his way out. Seeing the ray uh, poking out of the tower's window, he collapses the tower, destroying the machine along with it. Luther apparently just gave up. He's just like, "Eh, I don't really want the ray. I'm bored of the ray. I'm bored of this earthquake stuff. I'm moving on to my next scheme. Just leaves the ray and uh, escaped, obviously. Clark Kent goes back to Martins' laboratory and discovers that he committed suicide because of the guilt of of his invention. And uh, the final panel is Clark Kent talking to his editor, uh, saying that the secret of the earthquake machine died with Martinson, and it will never menace civilization again. And that is the first of four stories in Superman number four. Let's move on to the second story. This second Superman story begins with a news flash saying that the oil wells of the central United States, I guess, have stopped flowing, and Clark is sent out to cover the story. So, to save money on airfare or train fare, Clark turns into Superman and is just going to run there. But as he's running there, a strange-looking rocket, uh, it looks a lot like the rocket that he came in on, 
Uh, but it's not Kryptonian. I didn't. I was like, whoa, another Kryptonian, but no. Uh, and Superman tries to evade the rocket, but it's it's following him uh, as if like you know it's attracted to him. He jumps onto it and discovers that it's radio controlled. He he breaks the radio controls, and it begins to plummet to Earth. Uh, then suddenly, Luther's face appears on the side of the rocket. That must just be some sort of technology that it has. He has maybe he ex- it ex- it's explained in Action Comics twenty three. Let's hope because. Uh, uh, <laughs> otherwise, it's just really weird. He says, Superman, keep clear of the oil well mystery or die. And Superman, being just a cool guy, says, sorry, I choose to meddle in the oil well affair and I refuse to die. Which is true because the projectile you know, hits the ground, explodes, and Superman's fine. He runs to the Oklahoma oil fields where the wells have gone dry and an earthquake happens maybe maybe luther copied the uh designs of that earthquake machine from last story and is using it in this one and uh superman saves all of the derricks from collapsing and all of the oil uh miners oil oil men uh, are are thankful then lois lane uh arrives in oklahoma city uh, at the airport she had to fly like a normie and she's told by someone at the airport that a bunch of derricks were destroyed, but uh, thanks to Superman, some are still intact. And she says, just my luck. I would arrive just in time to miss seeing Superman. Because you know that feeling when you got a crush on someone. You're just always so excited to, to see him. We've all been there. Clark happens upon Lois in Oklahoma City, and he says, oh, you've been sent to help me on this story. Okay, let's go to the Oklahoma Bulletin to talk to some people. Once they get to the Oklahoma Bulletin, they're informed that uh, the Pacific Coast, the entire Pacific Coast, all the way from Washington or Canada, I guess, Alaska, Canada, America, Baja, Mexico, I guess, Baja, California, sorry, uh, are covered in two feet of water. The ocean is steadily rising, which is true today, still. Whoa. Uh, Clark decides to abandon the oil well story, and him and Lois are headed to the West Coast. As they leave the Oklahoma Bulletin, they are stopped by two thugs who tell them to get in their car at gunpoint. They're informed that uh, it's a, this is a free ride at Luther's invitation, and that he hasn't forgotten how you two interfered with his plans once before. I would presume that this is in Action Comics 23 that this happens. Uh, man, so many things are just going to be revealed when we get to Action Comics 23. It's exciting. Um, but it, it leaves a lot of things in the dark in, in the Superman issue. Uh, so they're driving around the mountain road, which I don't know if you've ever been to Oklahoma, but um, there um, aren't any mountains. It's uh, very, very flat, as is most of the Midwest, uh, the Great Plains, as they're called. Uh, because they're so flat. But they're driving around a mountain road at breakneck speed. And acting swiftly, Clark presses a certain nerve on Lois's neck, which I think he's done before, uh, to knock her unconscious. And he breaks the steering wheel off of the car and breaks the emergency brake. And the guy tries to shoot him in the face, and the bullets bounce off. And Clark makes a little uh, joke about being thick-skulled. He knocks the skulls of the two thugs together, knocking them out. And right before the car drives over a cliff in Oklahoma, where there are no cliffs, 
Clark jumps out with Lois in tow. He then runs her to uh, an airfield before she becomes conscious. Uh, he, he makes some excuse about them being released by the thugs to if they abandon their investigation. But of course, they're not going to because they're good reporters. Uh, they then pay the exorbitant price of $1,000 to fly to get flown to the West Coast. Uh, which is insane flights. I mean, I guess maybe on short notice, flights from like Oklahoma to LA would maybe might be a thousand dollars, but a thousand dollars in 1940 money—that's insane. That's insane. And plus, Clark doesn't have that million dollars from the from the treasure or whatever because he gave it all away to that um, that like youth center, if if we remember. So they're flown to. Uh, the west coast and Clark sees something coming out of the ocean and asks to be flown out there Uh, as they're flying out there a glass enclosed city of ancient weird design comes up and the glass cover opens and out comes a pterodactyl Ah! and the pterodactyl attacks the plane Uh, it knocks Lois unconscious and kills the pilot so Clark grabs Lois and jumps out of the plane but they are grabbed by the pterodactyl. So Clark Clark has to do mid-air battle with the pterodactyl. He grabs it by the mouth and knocks it out. Or, I don't know, snaps its neck. Who knows? Uh, and they, they, they fall to the ground. Uh, Clark takes off of his suit and has his Superman costume on. And Lois is in shock. And this, this statement, which shows that they don't really know a lot about medicine, the, the writers of this... He says, that's odd. She's conscious, but appears to be unaware of what's occurring. The shock must have put her in a coma. That's not what a coma is. Uh, She might be in some sort of fugue state or state of shock, uh, but not a coma. Moving on. Clark's going to get her some water to hopefully, you know, make her feel better. But when he's gone, a giant rat emerges and is creeping up on Lois. As it's about to strike... Uh, Clark jumps out and punches it, grabs it by the foot and spins it around, throws it over the horizon into the ocean, plummeting to its death. Once Superman turns around, he notices that Lois is gone now. Where is she gone? Well, she's gone into this weird plane that's flying towards the nearby city. Superman chases after the plane. But as he is, he hears a voice that says, Superman, offer no resistance or Miss Lane will be destroyed which is aggressive. Superman declares that that's Luther's voice, so we know who the bad guy is, even though we already knew. And Superman lands next to the plane uh, passively. You know, he's not, he's not, like, attacking or anything. And Luther instructs his henchmen to take uh, Lois to the Green Laboratory to treat her, to, to, to get her senses back. And Luther gives... Superman, a tour of the city. And he tells Superman that this is the uh, remnant of the sunken continent of Pasifo, a, a fake, a fake ancient continent. Uh, and uh, Luther says that he, he raised this glassolite dome over the city, drained out the water, and then raised the city to the surface of the ocean. He must have needed a lot of oil for this purpose, like uh, if that's what glassolite is made out of, or he needed it for machinery, but he was the one who obviously tapped all the oil wells so that they were dry. 
And in his laboratory that he shows Superman, he, he shows him that he's cre- recreated biological monstrosities of the past. Even though that's not very nice. They're just normal animals. Dinosaurs are just normal animals. Okay? They're not monstrosities. Rude, Luther. And he's going to use his, his monstrosities to take over the world, obviously. Luther then asks uh, Superman to give him assistance. And if he does, he'll be more merciful with the world. Otherwise, he doesn't know what he'll do, you know? Uh, Superman asks for some time to think. And while he's thinking, his super hearing overhears that the green laboratory is actually code for kill Lois Lane. And that's what's happening with Lois Lane and the henchmen. So Superman busts through the walls, uh, defeats the henchmen, and grabs Lois. And Luther is then knows Superman's answer, aligning himself against Luther and his stupid purple suit. We then discover that the the U.S. armed forces have discovered the uh, floating city, and they're going to go uh, gas it for, you know, because, I mean, I guess it's like gas first, ask questions later about uh, mysterious cities that are now floating on top of the ocean. Luther, you know, is, is being generous. So he's going to give Superman a fighting chance to, to win their freedom, and he has to fight a T-Rex. Superman does. He does a good job. And even though he won, Luther uh, has his henchmen uh, shoot them. But before they can, the American Air Force uh, gasses the city, and Luther raises the glass dome and starts the city sinking underwater for protection, obviously. Superman then somehow gets Luther's experiments to attack him. It, he doesn't explain why. It just says Superman loops away, leaps away with Lois. The monsters close in on the shrieking Luther. So I guess they just turn on him because they're monsters or whatever. Superman busts through the glass dome, uh, flooding the city, swims back to shore, and then makes up an excuse for Lois about why she's now suddenly in a doctor's office rather than dead in a plane crash. Clark writes a great article, gets a good scoop, and his editor is very proud of him, and that's the end of the story. So, so another 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 one that involved Luther. It's uh, a little bit all over the place, I think. I think there's maybe a little bit too much to make a coherent story, but uh, I think it would have been better just either without the oil part or without the, the sunken city. Maybe split it up into two, like Luther is going to Hold the the country ransom for the oil reserves. You know that that seems like a good plot. Or he's going to use his sunken city uh, and his biological experiments to take over the world. One or the other, not both. It 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 leaves the story uh, lacking. So, but that's story number two. Uh, now we're going to move on to story number three. This story begins with. Clark getting an assignment from his editor at the Daily Planet, uh, and it says, Paul Dorgan, the eminent sociologist, is completing a book manuscript entitled Prosperity's Foe, and uh, Clark is tasked with getting an interview from him. He goes to Dorgan's residence, and he asks to see the manuscript, and Dorgan says no, but... Uh, he's about to print documentary evidence that will prove sinister persons or forces plan to deliberately stave off the return of national prosperity. So that's not good. Uh, as Clark leaves, he hears a gunshot, and he walks in, and Dorgan is dead. 
He thinks it's a suicide, and in his hand, he sees a tiny scrap of paper. He opens it, Clark does, and it says one power-mad individual is behind this threat to the nation, and his name is, and it cuts off there, because of suspense. And Clark says, odd that this is all that remains of the manuscript. Perhaps Dorgan was murdered, so that it could be stolen. Good job, Clark. You're a real investigative reporter. Uh, he calls the police, and after some questioning, it's deemed that he didn't do anything, so it's fine. Uh, once he returns to the office, there's a ton of excitement happening, and we find out that uh, the nation is being paralyzed by a wave of strikes in all major industries. There's disorder everywhere. Ships are sinking at sea. Airplanes are mysteriously cracking up. The business world is panic-stricken. So that's not good. Uh, and so Clark thinks, man, maybe Dorgan was right. Maybe there is someone trying to stop the nation's return to prosperity. So Clark becomes Superman, because this is a job for Superman. And he returns to Dorgan's residence to look for clues. Uh, he searches, but doesn't find anything. Uh, but while he's searching, a man comes in, and Clark hides. Uh, this man is also searching the room. I don't know why. And it also doesn't really make any sense once we find out who this guy is. Uh, Superman comes out, and uh, the guy tries to shoot him. And Superman grabs him and asks him what he was looking for. And the guy says, nothing. I'm nobody. I'm just an ordinary burglar looking for a few bucks. And Superman says, you're lying. And he is lying. Uh, meanwhile, two other thugs are using binoculars to spy on Dorgan's residence. And they say someone's caught Louie, presumably the burglar in, in Dorgan's apartment, and they call their boss for orders. And the orders are to call the police uh, and say that there's a burglar at Paul Dorgan's house. And they do that. And the police come in before Superman can get the information out of this thug about who he works for. And Superman, valuing his freedom, busts through the wall because he loves to destroy property. Uh, as the police leave with Louie, the burglar, uh, his two compatriots shoot him and drive off in their, in their car. Superman follows, and uh, on a mountain road, because you got to love a mountain road, he stops the car by destroying the road in front of and behind them. Rather than disabling the car itself, he's going to destroy the road because, again, he loves to destroy property. And this is public property. This is a road paid for by taxpayers' money. So Superman wastes your tax dollars, just so that you know. The, the thugs get out of the car because they're scared. And Superman says, you've been bad. And so I'm depriving you of your car like he's a father and they're teenagers who snuck out after curfew. They shoot him with a gun a bunch, bounce off of his skin, of course. And Superman just waits, you know, until they're done, until they've basically scared themselves enough for him to, to have some leverage. And he finds out that they work for Barney Calhoun. They're part of the Barney Calhoun gang. I honestly thought that this was going to be another Luther story, um, just because it seems like his M.O. But uh, no, Barry, Barney Calhoun. So, uh, so Superman leaves them there, kind of stranded on this little patch of mountain road, and is off to look for Barney Calhoun. The two thugs attempt to climb to safety, uh, but one falls and dies, falling to his death. It's sad. The other one calls his boss, Barney, and warns him that Superman's coming. So once Superman gets to Calhoun's hideout, it's gone. Or it's not gone. It's empty. Uh, and he finds a dictaphone and listens 
to it and finds out that the Cargill auto plant is going to be destroyed tonight, presumably to ruins the nation, the nation's march to prosperity. Uh, the phone rings and Superman answers it because why not? And uh, someone's on the line warning him to drop his investigation. Uh, Superman says, nah. And so they blow up the phone and uh, parts of the apartment. Superman's fine. Don't worry. And he he races off to the Cargill auto plant. And once he gets there, he finds a man sabotaging it, uh, you know, setting up explosives. And he ties the man to a pole so that he'll be blown up as well unless he answers his questions. He tells him that uh, in 10 minutes, every auto plant in town is going to be blown up. Now, I don't know if this is Detroit or Metropolis is just a real uh, a real manufacturing, auto manufacturing town, but must be a lot. Uh, and he tells him that the, the it's going to be set off from underneath the, uh, the Western Boulevard Bridge. And so Superman races off to prevent the explosives, leaving that man tied up to that pole, <laughs> which I think, hey, you deserve that. You deserve that guy. He gets there and throws a huge boulder at the kind of junction explosion box. You know, the one with like the handle that you press down with the plunger, and breaking it so that it can't be set off. And he beats up the guy who is about to blow up all these auto plants. And he asks him if he should punch him again. And the guy says, no, uh, in a few minutes, the Streamline Limited is going to be re- derailed. Uh, so Superman rushes off to stop that. And he discovers that sections of the rail have been removed so that it will derail and crash and presumably kill people, you know, ruining their faith in, in, in the safety of train travel. Which, I mean, <laughs> if you've read the news in the last few weeks, uh, yeah, tra- train transportation is not good at the moment uh, with the multiple crashes in Ohio uh, kind of ruining the lives of many people that live there. So, uh, Superman tries to warn the conductor of the train, the engineer. Uh, He waves to him, but the other guy just waves back, thinking that it's a a friendly gesture. Uh, Not to mention that this dude is just running alongside the train. He's just like, oh, hey, what's up? So, Superman goes to the back of the train and grabs it uh, and and strains with all of his might and and finally stops it with inches to go to the sections of the the missing track. So, uh, Superman rushes off. Because uh, he, he brought the guy who was going to uh, blow up all the auto plants. He brought him with. But he escaped while Superman was trying to stop the train. So he follows him to a drugstore and overhears a phone call. And finds out about something called a Langley Mill job. And as the, as the, the you know, bad guy, goon, henchman, comes out of the drugstore uh, where he was making a phone call. He grabs him and makes him tell him where Barney Calhoun is hiding. And he finds out the Barton Manor. So, you know, Superman does his Vulcan nerve pinch move that I, I think Star Trek hasn't been invented yet. So I guess it's the Superman uh, nerve pinch to knock out this guy. He runs off to the Langley Steel Mill before uh, he goes to the Barton Manor. And uh, he finds a guy sabotaging the mill. Uh, to make it so that men will refuse to work there because it's unsafe. Superman runs in there and stops uh, a bunch of workers from being killed by molten ore from the sabotage. And uh, Superman finds the thug and chases him through the mill, and he falls into molten ore, so that's a little bit of, you know, comeuppance. Finally, Superman makes it to Barton Manor and finds Barney Calhoun there. And tells him to tell him, you know, why are you sabotaging, like, why are you sabotaging industry? 
And uh, Barney Calhoun says, hey, have a drink, you know, loosen up and I'll tell you everything. And Superman does. He takes a big old swig of, let's say, bourbon whiskey because we're in America and that's an American drink. Uh, But Barney Calhoun says, well, I don't have to tell you anything because you just drank enough poison to kill 100 men. And Superman says, nah, I'm fine. The poison doesn't affect me because I'm Superman. And then Superman threatens to, to force the drink down Calhoun's throat unless he tells him who's behind all of the stuff that's been happening, you know, to stop the nation's prosperity, march to prosperity. Calhoun says that it's uh, Joe Curtis, uh, a foreign nation, promised him important concessions. I don't know uh, concessions for what. If he wrecked uh, America's economic structure. Uh, and he sa- Calhoun says that Curtis is going to launch a financial upheaval that will panic the stock exchange and plunge the country into its worst depression, which is saying something because the Great Depression, I mean, in a lot of ways, it just ended at this point. And for some people, it's still going on. Like, it's, it's a very big, scary thing, depression at this point. So Superman, with Calhoun under his arm, rushes to Curtis's residence and gets there mere minutes before he's about to telephone the order for his brokers to plunge the country into economic chaos. Superman comes in through the window because doors are for suckers and threatens Curtis. But Curtis says, I'm not scared, and electrocutes uh, Barney Calhoun to death with some sort of uh, lever. And then he's about to do it to Superman, uh, but it doesn't work on Superman because Superman's Superman. And Superman reaches over and touches Curtis, and the electricity flows through Superman into Curtis, uh, electrocuting him to death. So crisis averted. And a week later, Clark uh, turns in a, a startling expose on the on the on the plot, and uh, gets a pat on the back from his uh, editor. And that is the end of story number three. I think it is is pretty good. It, it really has a sense of of everything happening at once, and and. Superman having to rush from one crisis to the next, to the next, to the next. And all these moving parts works a lot better in this story, I would say, than it did in the last story. So yeah, pretty good. Uh, But let's move on to the final story of Superman number four. The final story of Superman number four begins, as all three of the other ones have, with Clark getting assignment from his editor at the Daily Planet. He's to head down to the truck driver's union meeting uh, because there's there may be some excitement. So he heads down. And during the meeting, a man stands up and says, Shut up and get off that platform, Carlson. We don't like the way you run things. They have a fight, uh, and Carlson punches the guy in the face and says, Go back to your racketeering boss, Gus Snide, and tell him to stay clear of our union. So, you know, after the meeting, Clark talks to Carlson and, you know, asks him uh, for details. And he says, come by my house for an interview that evening. He does. uh, And when Clark gets there, Carlson seems disturbed. He seems distressed. And he and Clark finds out that their daughter, Amy, left uh, school hours ago, but hasn't made it home, which is weird. because She's a little girl. The phone rings and it is someone telling Carlson that if he wants his child you know back safely uh he's got to do what they say and uh first tell the reporter to leave clark's like oh okay i will leave uh he obviously overheard the whole phone conversation because of his super acute hearing uh and clark figures out that whoever was on the phone obviously knew that he was there so they have to be nearby so he sees a dark auto 
kind of sitting uh, up the street from from the Carlson home. And inside are two thugs and little Amy Carlson. And they are going to, quote unquote, mark up her face, which uh, means they're going to cut up her face a little bit uh, to send a message to to Carlson, uh, which is not good. And Superman doesn't like that. Superman hates the, you know, the weak and innocent being uh, harmed by those nefarious people. So he rushes to the car and before the knife can uh, touch the sweet little face of Amy Carlson, he puts his hand in front of it, stopping the point uh, uh, from, from touching her. He then grabs Amy out of the car and kicks it into a telephone pole uh, and the two uh, thugs rush off. After returning Amy to her parents, uh, Superman follows the two thugs back to a building, uh, which is revealed to be Snide's hideout. And his two, you know, henchmen come back and they're, you know, like, oh, everything was going fine until, you know, a guy came and tossed our car around and, and broke our knife and all this kind of stuff. And Snide's like, ah, he, you know, he's a super strong, impenetrable man. That's got to be Superman. And everyone's like, no, he's a myth. And this whole time, Superman's been eavesdropping outside the window. He taps on the window, and everyone's like, oh, what's that? Oh, it must be something at the window. It's like um, it's like in Skyrim when, you know, you make a noise, and someone's like, oh, what was that? And then they go back, and it's just like, oh, must have just been the wind. Snide goes to the window and opens it up, sticks his head out, and Superman says, hello. <laughs> and he, he grabs Snide and says, mind coming out and keeping me company? It's lonesome out here. And he, you know, does the classic Superman thing of holding him up really high in the air to scare him. And after scaring him sufficiently, he asks if he'll sit down and talk with Superman. And he says, yes, yes, of course. And so we obviously think that Superman's going to say something like, oh, you know, confess to your crimes and, and go to the police or whatever, like he normally does. Uh, but that's not what that's not what he does. He, he kind of he wants to join this racket. Uh, he wants he wants to be a part of it. And Snide, being the, the smart guy that he is, is like, having Superman on our side will be, we'd be unstoppable. So they say yes, but they have to do a test. He wants him to kill Carlson to prove that he is, is going to side with them. So Superman leaves. He says he's going to do it. He leaves, and he goes and uh, kidnaps Carlson from his house after Carlson tries to shoot him with a gun, but obviously doesn't work. He brings Carlson back to Snide's hideout, and says, here you go. Are you satisfied? And Snide says, nah, no. I need you to shoot Carlson dead. Right right in front of my eyes. Because I'm a sicko. Superman says, nah, guns aren't my style. And so he lifts Carlson up. And just throws him out the window. And says that he'll fall to his death a mile away. It's the perfect murder. Uh, so Superman says quickly, he says, Ose, so you've got sufficient proof. Uh, you know, talk to me later uh, about the plan or whatever. Uh, and he says farewell. And he jumps out the window, and the, the the bad guys are talking about like, oh, we'll you know we'll use him until he's not useful anymore, and then we'll you know we'll get rid of him. But at that moment, Superman is racing against time to catch Carlson as he's falling through uh, the sky to his death. Uh, after they land on the ground safely, Carlson is understandably upset. He you know he says, well, haven't you caused me enough misery? And Superman explains that he's doing it to kind of be a double agent or whatever for this racketeering group. Carlson's like, all right, that's all the explanation I need. I trust you. And so Carlson's going to hide out to pretend to be dead uh, for a while. 
So now Snide has gotten what he wanted. He's in charge of the truck drivers union. And the plan is to make all the truck drivers strike and cripple the the city's food distribution network uh, until they pay up uh, blackmail. So Superman, you know, has to do something about Snide's plans, but he doesn't know. He knows knows what he's going to do. So he goes to the police commissioner's house and breaks in and tells him that thugs plan to halt the city's food distribution tomorrow and that the police need to stop them. Uh, Although there's nothing illegal about striking, just so that Superman's aware. The striking aspect of it is not illegal. The blackmailing and racketeering, that part's illegal. So the next day the strike happens. The thugs are stopping the delivery drivers from delivering. And as this is happening, they're rounded up by the police for, you know, doing illegal things. But after the police have got them in the um, police wagon, uh, Superman pushes the driver out of the wagon and uh, grabs it and frees all of his, quote-unquote, compatriots. And they're back at Snide's hideout, and they're all like, oh, man, you should have seen him. He was so great. And Superman says, yeah, I was great. You know what? I'm so great. I'm going to be leader of this gang now. Snide, you're out. So... The strike continues, and you know they're they're taking milk and they're breaking it on the ground, and the drivers are like, "That's intended for hungry babies." Well, hey, maybe breastfeed your children. I don't know what to tell you. It's better for them. Uh, Superman can hardly bear it, you know, because he hates seeing this kind of stuff. But it's he's he he tells himself it's for the greater good, and I have feelings about that. Uh, and Snide, being angry about being thrown out of his position in his gang calls the police and says, hey, racketeering going on at, at Snide's hangout. Uh, if you look in his desk, you'll find all of the evidence that you need. And while this is happening, he gets into uh, a truck with the blackmail money that they got and is going to, to run away with it. The police bust into Snide's hideout and begin arresting everyone. And Superman says, Snide's betrayed us. Well, I'll talk plenty and I'm and implicate him too. And the other the other henchmen are like, Yeah, I'll do I'll implicate him, I'll confess to, to get back at him. So once all the confessions are recorded, Superman busts out of jail because no human structure can hold him, and he chases after where he thinks Snide has run off to. He catches up with Snide as he's driving over a cliff because he says he'll never get that money. It goes to the bottom of the ocean with me. Hey, Snide, is it really worth killing yourself just to stop Superman from getting this money? Also, he could just go in there and get the money after you are dead. So, bad bad plan, Snide. Superman jumps into the water after the car, goes in there, throws the car out of the water, and jumps up, grabs Snide and the money out of it, and, and and rushes back to the police station, gives them Snide and the blackmail money, and uh, Snide is arrested. And Clark writes a great article about the racketeering and gets a nice pat on the back, which he loves so much. And that is the end of the fourth and final story of Superman number four. Uh, a fine story. It, I, It's like all of the numerous times that Superman's put innocent people in harm's way uh, in order to get the bad guy in the end, it's the it's the it's the chain gang story, it's the orphanage story, but this time it's people's food. You know, you know, not just stopping them from being able to buy food because food isn't being delivered. And it's I just don't think that was necessary by Superman, and he can you know pat himself on the back all he wants, but like a lot of people probably went hungry during this story. So Superman, it, you know. It's fine, but you are only you don't look very good at the end of this story. Like you did you did the thing and you 
you save the day in the end, but um, you put a lot of people <laughs> through a lot of stuff in order to do it. So, uh, so yeah, so that's my problem with that story. Yeah, but that's Superman number four. A lot of stuff, some stuff that hopefully will be explained in Action Comics number 23, which will be next, uh, about Luther and, and his ability to to put his face on things and communicate through inanimate objects. But, uh, but yes, uh, let's move on to Action Comics number 23. Action Comics number 23 was released on February 22nd, 1940, with a cover date of April 1940. Two actual debuts in this issue, uh, as we learned, are Lex Luthor, although he's just referred to as Luthor in this, and The Daily Planet. The story was written, drawn, and inked by Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, and Paul Cassidy. Now, I will tell you, neither of those, neither of the things that I thought would be explained are explained in this issue. The Luthor face thing isn't explained, and uh, The Daily Planet is just changed from The Daily Star without mention. So, that's good to know, right? You know? We meet back up with Clark and Lois in Galonia and, and Turan, uh, the war that they were being war correspondents on, which is how we know that this story comes before Superman number four, because it takes place right after Action Comics number 22. So, uh, so Superman number four takes place after, along with, of course, him already knowing who Luther is, all this kind of stuff. Uh, we meet up with Clark and Lois uh, walking down the street to an interview for their job as war correspondents. And when a shell uh, explodes on the street and knocks Lois unconscious, Clark dons his Superman costume and uh, rushes into the sky and catches uh, some more of the uh, shells that are bombarding the city that they're in and throws them back, destroying the cannon that they're being shot out of. Quickly returning and putting back on his Clark Kent suit, he uh, wakes Lois up and tells her that Superman saved them while she was out. She's sad about this because she loves Superman. Uh, continuing to Army headquarters, where they were going to uh, interview General Lupo. They're going. They ask him how much longer he expects the war to last. He hopes it's going to end soon through negotiation. He says, in fact, two hours from now, all firing will cease and a party of Turan officials will drive into the city under a flag of truce and discuss peace terms. So Clark, wanting to get some good photographs of, of that, he dons his Superman costume and grabs his camera and uh, jumps out and, and gets a nice perch to watch the Turan officials drive in. As he's taking pictures of them, the car explodes. And the Turanian army finds out about this, thinks it's Galonian treachery, and the battles begin anew. Superman heads back to his apartment and puts back on his Clark Kent clothes, goes to the telegraph office and dispatches uh, news to his newspaper, and then visits General Lupo again, asking him what he has to say now. Lupo swears that it must have been an accident. He doesn't. He wouldn't have done that deliberately. And, and Clark leaves, uh, but with his super hearing, hears Lupo on a suspicious phone call talking about that he got rid of that suspicious reporter and no one will ever guess the truth. So, becoming Superman once again, uh, Superman follows General Lupo as he drives through a canyon, and he stops near a mountain and walks up to it and abruptly vanishes. Superman eventually finds a secret hidden entrance by ripping rocks out of the mountain, and inside he sees uh, General Lupo staring at a blank slab of rock. 
Suddenly, that blank slab turns into a face that can talk. And Lupo says that the plans have been carried out and the war will be prolonged. After the, they keep, they, they say ugly vision. Uh, they call Luther like ugly and hideous in this entire story, which I, I mean, he just looks like a normal character. So I don't know uh, why. Uh, but uh, Superman confronts Lupo and tells him to tell him what's going on. And Superman says that he's going to uh, dash Lupo's brains against a wall unless he tells him because Superman is very violent. Lupo does, and he says that in a little while, a squadron of unidentified planes are going to invade and bombard a nearby neutral country. Because, you know, you know, they just, you got to attack neutral countries because, you know, it causes the most, you know, hubbub. So Luther's plan is to engulf the entire continent in bloody warfare. And Superman's like, but who is Luther? And uh, Lupo is about to tell him, he's going to say, he says, Luther is is and then uh over superman's shoulder the face reappears and shoots green rays killing lupo and attempts to do the same to superman but obviously the rays don't work superman then punches the face breaking the slab and the cavern caves in upon him being superman he digs his way out and sees the squadron of unidentified bombers that he was told about and he jumps up there and disables all four by, you know, like shooting them with a gun that's a, the, that's attached to the plane. Or he grabs one and throws it into another one. Uh, and then for the final, he crashes the plane that he's on into another plane, uh, obviously surviving the crash, but nobody else does. He then dons his Clark Kent uh, clothes and heads to, I, I don't know how he got the two uh, warring countries, like, together but he heads to this room where they're both at and he tells them that a madman is is behind what's happening uh he wants to destroy both of you and they don't believe him because he doesn't really have any facts uh and they think he's just improvised we now see luther for the first time in his secret lair and he looks a little bit different he looks a lot angrier than we saw in superman number four and his hair is different it's more red than blonde uh and uh everyone's dressed weird like in Superman number four, Luther was wearing a suit, and this one he's wearing some sort of red just shirt uh, with big sleeves, and all of the henchmen are wearing weird, like, puffy shirts, uh, green puffy shirts. And Luther wants his men to kidnap Clark Kent because he knows too much and wants him eliminated. So they go to Clark's uh, hotel, and unfortunately, Lois is about to go talk to him uh, and she gets captured and brought to Luther's lair, which turns out to be on a platform hanging from a, a large dirigible in the stratosphere. Luther is not sure why they've brought this girl to him. And they say she's associated with the reporter. Perhaps she can be used to lure him here. Uh, they question Lois and she doesn't know anything about how Clark knows anything about Luther. And she's put in a cell uh, and she notices that the um, the guard that is guarding her it acts different than the other guards. Uh, we haven't been told that the guards act in any sort of weird way. They just seem like normal guards. Uh, but it turns out that they're underneath a hypnotic suggestion uh, of Luther. But this guard is immune for whatever reason. So Lois convinces him to go give a message to Clark. And uh, he does. He sneaks into Clark's room and gives it to him. And then Clark reads it and uh, becomes Superman, follows that guard back to the lair 
and jumps all the way up into the stratosphere, landing on the platform. He fights some guards, and uh, while he's doing that, Lois is uh, being tortured by uh, a guard, uh, even though she doesn't know anything. Superman uses X-ray vision to see this and punches through a wall, punching the guy. And then Luther's face appears on a wall. He, you know, says, "Hey, I'll destroy you." And Superman's not scared, but he's, uh, but Luther says, "The girl's not invulnerable to my rays or powers or whatever. So either submit or she dies." And Superman does, and uh, they're brought to to Luther, and he says, "What sort of creature are you?" Like he just looks like a normal guy. Like they keep calling him ugly and a creature and hideous, and he just looks like a normal guy. Uh, and Luther says that. He says, just an ordinary man, but with the brain of a super genius. Uh, and with scientific miracles at his fingertips, he's prepared to make himself supreme master of the world. Uh, so he plans to, you know, pit all these countries against each other. And then once they're weakened by this, he will step in and assume control of the entire world. So uh, Luther then uh, chains Superman to the wall and shoots him with four green rays uh, steadily. And he says that in five minutes, uh, these rays will uh, result in Superman's annihilation. And Superman is affected by these, these rays. He uh, feels his, his strength slowly departing. Uh, but with a burst of strength, he busts out of his chains and destroys the ray. And turns it, or actually first turns it on all the guards, uh, kind of annihilating them. Luther then grabs another ray, like a like a bigger ray, and shoots it at Superman. And Superman says that he feels it sapping his strength. But with the last bit of his strength, his energy, he jumps at the ray and destroys it. Uh, Superman then grabs Luther and Lois and rushes to the dirigible control room, beats up all the guards in there, and destroys apart the controls uh, with his bare hands which I guess are, is going to cause the dirigible to crash. I don't know how. It's mostly just floating there. Like, I guess it'll just slowly sink to the ground. Unless he, like, puts a hole in it or something. But uh, he jumps out of it with Lois, and it crashes to the ground. And they say, and that's the end of Luther. But we obviously know that it's not. Superman runs Lois back to the city, becomes Clark Kent, goes back to the to the two warring nations and says, that dirigible, that was Luther, and he was going to, you know, foment this war against you between you two and, and the rest of the world and they believe him and the war is stopped clark sends back his story to the daily planet which is this is where it's referenced as the daily planet not the daily star uh without any sort of note uh and everyone's so and everyone's so happy and and clark and and lois are going to return to metropolis and that's the end of the uh, superman story in action comics number 23 the the face thing, as I've said, doesn't get doesn't get referenced of how he does that. It's just science. That's how it does it. A weird story because Luther's. I mean, Luther's still a nebulous idea. He's really he really seems like just the ultra humanite, right? But he's Luther. But yeah, that's that's Action Comics number twenty three for Superman. Uh, so we'll be moving on to the Zatara story. The Zatara story of Action Comics number 23 was written and drawn by Gardner F. Fox and Fred B. Gardiner. Now, uh, this story is called Zatara, the Master Magician, and the Treasure Tower. And I'll tell you right now, it's not a good one. Uh, it's a lot of uh, getting there 
uh, for not a lot of payoff. So uh, just prepare yourself. So Zatara's walking in New York City, presumably, and uh, he runs into an old friend, Rick Evans. Rick Evans says, what a coincidence, you're just the man I need. Uh, as they're talking about this, two men drive up in a car and are, are attempting to shoot Zatara and Rick Evans. Zatara turns the bullets into doves. It's very cool. Like, the gun's shooting, out comes a bird. And to get back at these men who are attempting to shoot them, uh, Zatara turns their car into a baby carriage. Makes them look like babies. Haha, <laughs> everybody laughs at him. Rick Evans and Zatara head off, and Rick Evans tells him about this man named Kartsoff who made millions and bought uh, gigantic jewels with his wealth, and he built a weird tower to hide them in. Evans says he's found the map, telling him where the treasure is. But there's also some sort of threat hidden inside the tower, so he needs Zatara and his master magic to, uh, to, to help him navigate the tower. They head back to Evans' house to get the map, and he shows him the map, and it says... Uh, well, before they do that, Zatara encloses the apartment in glass, glass walls. Uh, there's a lot of glass in this issue. And the riddle for the map, because it's clearly not a map, because if it was a map, it would just be a map, but it's clearly a riddle that tells you where to go. Through this riddle, they discover that they need to go to Mud Pond, Maine, uh, which is a, a place in Maine, the state of Maine, the United States of America. So as they're about to head out, we see that uh, Zatara's old pal Tigress, who he said, who he made promise to leave the country by sparing her from going to jail. It clearly didn't do that. And Zatara's a dummy for doing that. Uh, she is after the jewels, of course, and uh, is going to go through Evans and Zatara to get uh, them. So she sends her two thugs, which were the two thugs from the beginning, up to Evans's apartment. They are thwarted by the glass walls, and uh, Zatara encloses them in glass as well, and laughs at them and leaves. Uh, so uh, Zatara and Evans head north to Mud Pond, Maine. Tigress, finding out that her thugs are useless, follows uh, in her car, and all through the night uh, they follow until they get to Mud Pond, but they stay at Mud Pond Inn, and they're going to look for the tower in the morning. They ask around the inn, and nobody... We'll talk about the tower or carts off uh, until one woman does. And she's going to show Zatara where the tower is. Zatara has Evans stay at the inn. I don't know why uh, this was Evans idea in the first place. But Zatara says, wait here. And Evans just does. Once Zatara and this woman are gone, Tigress shows up. because She's been following them and sees Evans in the dining room. She pistol whips him as he is walking uh, back to his room and knocks him out, brings him to her room, and reads the riddle, but can't figure out what it means. Meanwhile, Zatara is shown where the tower is by this woman, and as a reward, he grants her one wish, and she says uh, that she wants to be beautiful. And so Zatara makes her beautiful. And even though that was already a reward for something that she had done, she says, Ah, for this I shall be your slave forever. I shall even enter the tower with you to help you. Now, I don't know how she's going to be any help. She's just a regular person. So they return to the hotel, but uh, Zatara can't find Evans anywhere. And so to find him, he turns all the hotel's walls and ceilings and stuff into glass. Because he's obsessed with glass, this issue. And he sees through the ceiling 
that Zatara has Evans in her hotel room. Uh, he probably saw a lot of other stuff because people think that they have privacy in their hotel rooms. But not when Zatara's around. And when Zatara's around, he can see everything you do. Uh, then he somehow reaches through the ceiling uh, with long arms. He says, "Make." He says, "Arms belong," but he doesn't say, you know, arms be going through the ceiling. Uh, but he grabs Tigress and Evans and puts Tigress in her car, makes it grow wings, and fly her back to her home, New York. It, it doesn't say. They then decide that they better go to the tower immediately. Evans is apparently too injured to, to go along. So it's just it's just Zatara and this lady who helped him the first time. Uh, then something stupid happens. Like, they already made this walk once, but this time, this time, there's quicksand that this lady never noticed. Like, they've, they already walked there and back, but the, she never noticed it. Uh, she falls in the quicksand, and Zatara turns it not into quicksand anymore. They're um, about to head into the tower when this lady notices that a, a plane is landing nearby. Because in the time that it took them to walk from the hotel to this tower, Tigress's car that has wings made it all the way back to wherever she was going. I presume New York, because that just makes the most sense. She was then able to get another plane and fly it back to the hotel all in that time. Uh, so that makes no freaking sense. And why even why even do that? Why even send Tigress away if you're just going to bring her back like 10 panels later? It does. It doesn't. It's bad. There, you know, she sends her two thugs that she brought back with her. Uh, they attempt to shoot Zatara. Zatara turns their bullets into uh, cigarettes as they come out. And then the ground begins to smoke the cigarettes. Uh, the smoke uh, rings come up and uh, fasten themselves to the thug's hands as handcuffs then the path is suddenly quicksand like Zatara didn't turn it into quicksand it's just suddenly quicksand again and Tigris is falling into it he turns Tigris into a puff of smoke to get out of it and then Zatara says something that we're all thinking and he says I don't know why I'm always saving you from the fate you deserve yes Zatara I agree I don't know why you're doing that Tiger says, I'm your friend now, Zatara. Okay, didn't want you to be my friend. You're my nemesis. Okay, they enter the tower, and uh, they're met by this cloaked uh, spooky figure. He just says, intruders of this tower, if it is the treasure you seek, it is here. But beware of the curse of Kartsov. Then he just walks up the stairs. And uh, Zatara follows in shadow form uh, and sees that at the top of the stairs is a mechanism to activate mechanisms that move the walls together to, like, crush people. Zatara heads back downstairs before this happens, uh, and he has them get out of the room that they're in, and right after they get out of the room, uh, the floor and the ceiling, like, slam together and would have crushed them. So to protect uh, the two women, he turns them flat as pancakes so that, you know, if the walls or ceiling come together, they just have to lay down or, you know, stand flat against the wall. Uh, he then rushes upstairs, and the guy, the cloaked figure, thought he was dead. So uh, Zatara turns him to stone and searches for the treasure quickly, finds it uh, quickly, but by a mighty effort of will, the cowl man breaks Zatara's spell. And he says, you are the first ever to overcome me, Boris Kartsov. Now we die together. And so he's going to crush the control room. 
But before he can, Zatara uh, uses a spell to stop the walls from moving, grabs the treasure and the the two very flat women, and uh, rushes out of the tower as Kartsov pulls all of the letter levers, uh, which like you know causes like a feedback and crushes the tower to uh, dust. Zatara then brings the treasure to Evans, even though he did nothing. I mean, I guess he did have the riddle, but uh, whatever. And he's got the jewels, and that's the end. Uh, just a real, like I said, just a real, a long journey to very little payoff. I would think that the tower was more than just some crazy guy, like, crushing the walls together. Just a, uh, Zatara stories are always so hit or miss on whether or not they're going to be good. Um, and this one, I didn't think was very good. Maybe you, Maybe you enjoyed it, but I did not. So I'm going to move on to the final issue of this episode. More Fun Comics number 54 was released on February 29th. Oh, cool, a leap day. That's fun. Uh, 1940, uh, with a cover date of April 1940. Uh, only the Spectre in this one, uh, and the Spectre was written by Jerry Siegel and Bernard Bailey. And we meet up with Jim Corrigan, still kind of putting on the ruse that he is alive uh, and is Jim Corrigan, and not a ghost, an earthbound ghost. He uh, stops a bullet from a, a criminal, or he, you know, he stops a criminal who shoots him, and all his other police friends are like, wow, Jim, are you all right? I can't believe that bullet missed you. But Jim's, of course, like, no, what they don't know is that bullet passed right through me because I'm a ghost. And as Jim leaves the police station later, he is accosted by Clarice Winston, his former fiancée. She says she's been waiting. And he's like, Clarice, please, things are done between us. They have to be. And she says, I've only come to you because I need your help. My mother is being swindled. She's being swindled. She explains that her mother has been visiting a a person named Ronnie Set, a spiritualist who's been extracting money from her by summoning the spirit of her dead brother. But uh, Clarice is convinced that she's a fraud. Jim also tries to convince Clarice's mother but uh, she is not having it, and she's also surprised that Jim would have the nerve to come here after what he did to Clarice. Which, like, I get it. Uh, but but still, she'll show him that Ronnie said is real. And they visit him to talk to Abner again. So they all sit around the table, and they darken the room, and suddenly a head appears. And Mrs. Winston says, Abner, is it you? And, and the head says, it is I, your brother. I've come back from the dead. And Jim, using his very nebulous and undefined powers, duplicates himself. One being Jim sitting at the table, uh, not moving. The other in the guise of the specter, because he can just change at will into uh, his specter costume. He invisibly walks through the wall into the other room and finds a man talking into sort of a microphone system that, uh, that pumps the, the sound through to the other side. Him and the man lock eyes, and after glimpsing death, the man collapses unconscious, not dead. That's very important. And the specter talks into the microphone and says, This is not Abner. This is an exhibition of Ronnie Set's faked tricks to fool the gullible. And Jim goes back into his body, and they all leave in a huff. And uh, Mrs. Winston says that Ronnie Set will hear from her lawyer. And Ronnie Set is mad at his at his uh, partner, and they have a hunch that Jim Corrigan had something to do with this. That night, 
uh, Jim is lying in bed. He doesn't need to sleep. It specifically says that. He's just reclining. I mean, I'm, if I was a dead ghost who didn't need to sleep, I might, you know, just randomly go lay in bed. I don't know. Maybe just kind of go through the motions. Uh, Ronnie Seth's kind of partner or underling sneaks into the room and attempts to stab Jim, but Jim turns invisible and chokes the man. And uh, the lights come on, and he is the specter. He tells the man to go back to Ronnie Set and tell him that he's succeeded in killing Jim Corrigan. So the man does, but the specter follows and watches from the outside. And Ronnie Set says, uh, with that snooping detective out of the way, we are free to once again extract money from Mrs. Winston. Get the apparatus. Uh, so the the two drive to the Winston household. Uh, the specter tags along by just standing upright on top of the car. It's a very it's a very fun image. And uh, Ronnie Set climbs up the side of the house and shines a flashlight that has Abner, Mrs. Winston's brother's face on it. And she wakes up and says, Abner. And uh, the specter uh, is outside floating next to Ronnie Set. And uh, kind of pushes him off the building and he collapses onto his partner. And they get in their car and drive away. Jim heads home back to his uh, house. And and this is the part I don't like about these early superhero uh, stories. They just kind of let the villains kind of exist for too long. Like this dude was like, this dude tried to kill you. This dude is actively trying to swindle people out of their money. And you just let him go. Because... This is why you don't do that, because after the Spectre left, Ronnie Set and his partner came back and kidnapped Clarice. So Mrs. Winston calls Jim and says that Clarice has disappeared. So Jim rushes over, and uh, Mrs. Winston gets a phone call, and it's Ronnie Set. And he says to leave $100,000 underneath the Dale Bridge, but don't tell anybody. Uh, so she doesn't tell Jim, but Jim, using his powers, read her mind, so she knows exactly what's gonna happen so the specter watches the dale bridge and mrs winston drops off the money and uh, ronnie set's partner grabs it and heads back to ronnie set's apartment uh so now that they've got the money they can get rid of clarice and not by releasing her by killing her the specter release uh reveals himself in, in the room and they think they can trap him in this steel room but he he walks right through the wall like it's nothing and uh there they shoot Clarice, and as the bullet's flying through the air, the specter disappears, and he is hurtling through space, very similar to uh, the first issue. And the voice talks to him and says, Jim Corrigan, once again, judgment is to be passed upon you. And it says, we have relented. Your mission is too gigantic for one individual. You shall be permitted to pass on to eternal rest. So they've given up. They, you know, they just, they think it's too much work for one person to do. But the Spectre says, I can't pass on to the other world now. Much as I'd care to, Clarice is in danger. She needs my help. And the voice says, the decision is his, eternal rest or eternally earthbound. What is your answer? And he chooses to be earthbound because he has to save Clarice's life, which is is really, really touching and really, really nice. Uh, the voice proclaims that so shall it be. And he is transported back to the exact moment that he disappeared. He sees the bullet and using his powers makes it disappear uh, in, a, in a puff of smoke. And Clarice is saved. The specter then gets really big, which the specter does a lot. He like turns gigantic. And he, he locks eyes with Ronnie Set and his uh, underling. 
and they see death and they die. This time they die. They don't just uh, fall unconscious. They for real die. At this point, the specter grabs Clarice and flies her back to her house. And uh, as as she's waking up, she sees this mysterious figure uh, running away or flying away. And uh, the last panel is a sort of a, an advertisement for, for more Spectre, but it says it's something that I thought was interesting. It says, Now doomed to haunt crime and the world forever, the Spectre begins his lone battle against the underworld in earnest, which I think is cool. So, like, this is, this is A, his first real adventure, but B, it's also sort of a, a, uh, a coda to his origin story because... You know, at first it was temporary, which we didn't really know, but now we know that he is forever trapped on Earth to, to roam the Earth forever, stopping crime, which I think is really, really... It's, it, it's a very interesting, like, origin structure. Like, this, this three-issue arc uh, kind of, like, really is, is a full-on origin, whereas the, two, the first two issues you could also consider an origin, but I think that this third one uh, just kind of establishes it more, you know, sets it up. And also we see more of Jim's actual powers, which are cool. Uh, but that's more fun comics number 54, and that is the episode. That's all the issues. I know it wasn't very many issues this time, but there were so many stories in the Superman number four that I just didn't think that I'd be giving enough time to everything, or I'd be, you know, it'd be a three-hour episode if I did as many issues as I normally do. But them's the breaks. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch uh, with the show, with me, uh, you want to see some cool stuff, uh, head on over to our Instagram uh, issue issue podcast uh, I post a ton of primo panels and comic covers and, and cool stuff that I find in the comics it's uh, it's a good time uh, you can follow the Twitter but as I've said before I really don't know what to put on there so uh, really the Instagrams where most of the activity happens so I, I would head over there and give it a follow also speaking of to help out the show uh, if you want to give us you know ratings and reviews on uh, iTunes and Spotify and wherever you can rate and review i did notice we have our first hater everybody first one star rating but like most haters they're cowards and didn't leave a review but yeah get, you know head on over give us a rating review cr- critique me you know give me some or give me praise you know whatever you know things you like things you hate uh but yeah it's it's um it's cool you know we've got we've got we've got haters we've got fans that's that's what it's all about right uh, but yeah, that's gonna that's gonna do it for this week. Uh, let's. Uh, I've locked up the archives again. Uh, I've set the alarm, so don't even don't even think about about opening that door uh, until next week. Uh, but until then, uh, see you later. Mm-hmm.